Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at sumatisparks.com. And today I'm really excited to have as my guest a very dear friend named Arielle Giaretto. She's a licensed psychotherapist and sex educator who specializes in early trauma and attachment and how this affects relationships and sexuality. Welcome to the show, Arielle. Hey, thanks, Sumi. I'm really, really uh, touched that you invited me here, and I'm looking forward to having some fun with you talking about these cool topics. Yes, so glad to have you here. So when you say you're a trauma therapist, can you tell us what that means exactly? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, you know, to me, trauma is may not necessarily be what the mainstream uh, definition is. And uh, as a as a trauma therapist, I see myself primarily as a body-oriented therapist. My uh, my my orientation comes from uh, somatic experiencing, which is what I have trained in, and I teach lots of people how to work with trauma through the the body, through the physiology, and um, it's it's a way of kind of understanding how the nervous system is responding well, to life, responding to times when I feel threatened, times when I might feel overwhelmed by something. And, um, and it's, it includes um, emotions, of course, and it includes talking, but it's mostly helping people recognize their particular triggers um, and the reactions that occur at the body level. And particularly, because we're talking about relationships and sexuality, how what are the physiological responses to things like intimacy, getting close to people, um, sexuality, opening the relationship, you know, anything that for many people can be quite comforting, but to people with a trauma um, history, it, it's actually quite terrifying. And um, mm-hmm. many, many people are so ashamed they actually can combine or that they have mixed up that intimacy and terror um, are, are part of their makeup, but um, it's more common than we can all imagine, sadly, which, you know, gives me a, a, a nice full practice. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there's so many of us that have had early childhood traumas either because of parents that that were abusive or just you know, it's really hard to be a parent. So even parents that are trying real hard and are good people can, uh, things happen in life and you can have these early traumas. So these things, I'm assuming like as a body oriented therapist, you're talking about how these things stay in your body and stay in your nervous system. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. And, you know, and and you're so right. I mean, often it's just basically well-meaning people that don't know any better, you know, and we were all kind of raised, um, in this sort of focus on autonomy and independence. And, um, you know, many of us were separated from our parents for long periods of time, especially as, as babies. And so when I'm talking about, you know, I'm talking about the nervous system, I mean that if some of that really essential bonding and attachment doesn't happen, even with the most well-meaning parents, it just means that later on, um, many of us respond much more strongly than people who perhaps had what we call a healthy attachment 
um, with their their parents. And what is becoming a lot more well known now, and it's pretty much new news to many people, is that is how dependent we are how dependent we are, first of all, you know, on our parents to help what's called regulate us. You know, we are born really, really dysregulated. We have highs and lows, and it's really the parent that comes in and helps soothe us and calm us. And if that doesn't get laid down really, really uh, early, then we have a really, really hard time knowing how to do that as um, we become more and more independent from them. And most people don't know that. Most people think, oh, I'm just, there's something wrong with me. I'm over-emotional. I'm depressed. I need medication. And a lot of it actually has to do with this kind of nervous system regulation that isn't laid down really early on. So, um, you know, when I talk about trauma, a lot of people think, oh, well, what's trauma? Trauma from my um, orientation is that what is our physiological reaction, you know, which is, you know, basically the fight, flight, freeze response. How do I react to things that I perceive as traumatizing? So the classic ones are car accidents, falls, you know, medical procedures. And, and obviously what's, you know, really up for us, you and me, Sumi, is, you know, sexual trauma, working with sexuality. So these are the kind of well-known ones, but what's not as well-known is how young babies get trauma reactions when there are these ruptures in bonding and attachment. And um, many of us don't even know we have that. And many of our parents really, really wanted and loved us, but, you know, just just information about parenting has um, was 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 pretty meager back then and there's a lot more understanding about you know how to prevent some of these bonding and attachment traumas to happen later on mm-hmm. so um what what happens when there are when there is early trauma you know like what you were saying when there's when when this this attachment and this sense of security doesn't get laid down, well, we really really have a hard time later on uh, with ourselves, with ourselves in intimacy, with ourselves in sexuality. And we have a hard time trusting other people um, and and tend to be really super emotional or really really shut down and uh, think there's something really wrong with us. And um, mm-hmm. so that's those are the kind of you know clientele that I really like working with, or you know how do I help people repair these early bonding and attachment um, breaches? I look at it more often sometimes as a breach rather than a trauma, but I also want people to understand, wow, I mean this is a really serious thing that we don't have mm-hmm. some of this laid down when we're we're little. So that's right. Well, I really like what, what you said about, about how. I really like what you said about how there's so much shame about it because we do feel like it's our fault and I just need to get tougher. And, you know, if I could just read the right books, I wouldn't have right. such fear of abandonment or whatever. And so I love how you, you take the shame out of it. So how do you help people totally. feel like it's not their fault? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and there is shame, you know, when when we don't have control over ourselves, you know, when our body is reacting either, you know, physiologically, like, you know, a physio- physiological response to something is like my heart rate is accelerating, my, my palms are sweating, my 
I, sh I shut down my ability to think or communicate rationally. These are all really common reactions when there's been attachment trauma, and there's an incredible amount of shame about not being able to control myself or I can't control mm -hmm. my emotions. There's something really wrong with me. And um, so some people tend to go into isolation or they go into a lot of self-criticism or they self-medicate. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the things that we see in in our life that are kind of normal normal things, um, I look at these are people's attempts at self-regulating. You know, some people mm -hmm. call it self-medicating, but I call it self-regulating. You know, by drinking and drugs and lots of sex and um, maybe you know lots of exercise. These are these kind of meager ways that we try to feel more control over ourselves and. Mm -hmm. um, it's really difficult to do it that way and not feel shame. It's like, you know, I'm doing all these things. I'm reading the right books. I'm going to the right therapist. And and so what's often missing is that, and, and this is almost like, this is like bad to say this, is that we can't do it alone a lot of the time. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we live in this culture that is all about autonomy and independence and self-responsibility. But the truth is, is that we are interdependent and we need each other. We need each other's nervous systems. We need each other to co-regulate. And a mm. lot of what I teach my clients and I work on myself constantly and is knowing when I can do my own work, knowing when, okay, like let's take something like, you know, fear, anxiety, you know, when can I go into my own body? When can I directly work with my own physiology and be able to calm it just by being with it, like really entering mm -hmm. into it? And when is it too much? Mm -hmm. When is it too big for me? When can I not do it on my own? And that's when I count on my partner, you know. I mean, I think we all do. Like, when do you need a hug? When is, like, the hug the absolute best medicine, <laughs> you know? And, mm -hmm. and I can spend my whole life being in therapy talking about my childhood issues, you know, and how alone and isolated and, you know, shameful I feel. Or I can find a friend or a loved one who just holds me for a moment, and it's kind of magical, and yet there's shame about that. Like, I'm not supposed to count on somebody else to do that. It's really culturally mm -hmm. inappropriate. But from a mm -hmm. trauma perspective, from a nervous system perspective, it's often the only way. And when I work with couples, what I'm often working with is how do you co-regulate each other? You know, how do you recognize when your partner is really triggered? And mm -hmm. how do you approach him or her um, in just the right way that can bring their activation down. And then it becomes this beautiful collective experience. Um, and mm -hmm. some people are really resistant to that, and they feel a lot of shame about it. It's like, you know, damn it, why can't I do this myself? And, and some of that has to do with, well, it's not exactly, we can't necessarily blame your parents here because they were good people, but if you don't have a lot of that initial regulation laid down, it's really, really hard to do it ourselves, you know? And mm. and there's nothing to be ashamed of. Um, it's mostly just recognizing what our limitations are and, mm -hmm. um, and having a lot of compassion. Um, so partly what I'm doing with people sometimes is a lot of education, you know, a lot of... Um, 
education about how the nervous system works and an education about what it looks like to be triggered or activated and what are each person's sort of individual activation, we call it activation, or triggering, like some people go into freeze, some people shut down, go into isolation, some people get aggressive, you know, and they're like yelling and screaming and, and, you know, trying to regulate their activation through emotionality. And, you know, we we want there to be an understanding, like a recognizing of what it is that triggers me, how I can calm it, regulate it, address it. And like I said a moment ago, you know, how do I do it in relationship? How do I do it in partnership? Mm-hmm. And people mm-hmm. are not that well, great this is at really, that, you know? <laughs> yeah, this is very applicable. I'm excited about this because I just got back from a week-long camp with an organization called New Culture. And they do this process every morning with the whole group. So we had 40 people there, and every morning for about two and a half hours, we would all sit in a circle and, you know, not everybody every day, but a percentage of people would get to stand up one by one and share what's going on with them. And sometimes there were like real live relationship issues going on. And the rule was that you couldn't talk to the person directly that you're having the issue with. You just share it with the whole group and you own (laughs) it as your own stuff. And then if you're triggered and you're upset, then you can like go sit in someone else's lap or, have a whole bunch of people soothe you or you can ask for what you want, whether you want to talk or be held or whatever it is that you need. Um, The community is there to give you that. So you're not only relying on your partner, so your partner can then heal from their stuff that's triggered by your stuff. (laughs) So I just love this new culture that's getting created because we need that new culture because our old culture doesn't provide that. Our only hope is our primary partner to, have to be there, but what if they also get triggered? And that's why people break up, right? Because they're triggering each other so much, they're just fighting all the time. Totally. Yeah, no, that's that's amazing. Wow, I want to talk to you more about that. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, <laughs> well, I'm going to have the, you part- one of the major people. I'm going to have uh, Kelly Bryson mm-hmm. on the show in a couple months who who brought Great. it to uh, Northern California. So, yeah, stay tuned for that. <laughs> yeah, and I love that. I mean, I think that that relationships are a community effort, you know, and um, and learning that it's okay, you know, to get support from community, especially when things are going poorly in the primary relationship. Um, so, yeah, that's awesome. I'm really, that sounds like an amazing uh, time that you had. Yeah, oh, yeah, but it's just validating what you're saying that we we need we need each other and I think our culture has especially American culture is so um you know uh, individualistic and pull yourself up by your bootstraps but I don't think humans were designed exactly. that way our DNA is from tribes where you know we we have 100 people that they're all caring for each other and and so that's why we're exactly. also stressed out and feeling lonely and depressed and anxious <laughs> Because we're 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 in an unusual amount. I mean, it's just not in our bodies to be in isolation. You know, we are mammals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, right. And I, I want yeah, to. Yeah, I mean, just remember um, the. Well, I was just going to say. I mean, you know, just remembering what it was like. Even the messages of the '60s and '70s. You know, I do my thing, you do yours. You know, 
be if you're too involved with people, you're codependent. You know, there was really this mm-hmm. this negative, um, all this negative programming that we got um, about how I have to be fully responsible for myself. And of mm-hmm. course, you know, we have to be fully responsible for ourselves. And um, I think there is, especially. You know what's happening in our generation, which I love so much, is the, uh, the 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 community connection, and you know what I'm also working on professionally, you know, and my own personal work all the time, you know, is is how to bring more intimacy in the couple's relationship, um, especially mm-hmm. around you know opening the relationship, and um, mm-hmm. how um, wow. What a big deal that is, isn't it? It's a really big, it's a really big deal, and um, and how essential it is to navigate it with incredible patience and compassion. I had a really, mm-hmm. um, really negative experience um, when I was in in an open relationship. This was about this was in '97, so gosh, 20 years ago, and um, I went to see a a poly-oriented um, therapist. And it was so awful because what I um, I learned so much from this because what I felt was is there's so much attitude. Um, this was 20 years ago. Maybe it's changed. But there was so much attitude back then, um, a, kind of a fight against anything that, that smelled of traditional relationships. And mm-hmm. I felt personally really wounded by the person that was supposedly our therapist because I was having a lot of feelings and emotions about sharing my partner. And Mm -hmm. um, it felt like those feelings and emotions were sort of labeled sick. Like, how could you have Mm -hmm. those? You know, how could you not just Mm -hmm. have an open heart and, you know, lovingly let your partner have these beautiful things? And Mm. I'm, I'm really trying to be very, very careful to make sure that even though I have this belief system um, about the appropriateness of, of open relationships that, um, and I've also, because I've done so much of my own work, realized, wow, it sometimes takes many, many, many years for someone to be ready, you know, and there, there is a very slow process for people, especially if they have early trauma. They just take mm-hmm. longer. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that one can change with an attitude. You know, well, you want to have an open relationship. Why aren't you just doing it? What's getting in the way, mm-hmm. you know? And right. the shaming that I felt because I was somehow, you know, the word that, that was thrown at me is, well, you know, well, what do you want? Some kind of a traditional relationship. It's like mm-hmm. a traditional relationship. I wouldn't be here talking about my, my boyfriend having sex with seven women if I was in a traditional relationship, you know? Right. Um but so I think there's there's both sides of it, right? There's this, this we have to be careful not to be too political about it, and not to think that oh, you know, open relationship is the only way. You know, we also, and I'm sure you know this, you know, because you you take care of so many people in this and you help so many people in this, is that each person has their own story and each mm-hmm. person has their own um, reaction to opening up a, a, a relationship. And I think one of my personal triggers is a lot of the attitudes that I see around jealousy. Um, you know, people teaching jealousy workshops, right? You know, mm-hmm. I will 
fix your jealousy. You come to this one-day workshop and you'll never feel jealous again, you know. <laughs> and um, clearly this is not someone who has ever felt insecure attachment, you know. Um, well, there, was, this a, is there some... was a teacher offering that, and I was really curious, like, how could they say that? And I looked at some of their videos, and their their basic message was, don't call it jealousy because it's something else underneath the jealousy. So that's how they could promise to never have jealousy again because we're just not going to use that word. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's just call it something else, you know. Um, well, I mean, that's not a bad approach, you know, because in a way we need to take the word, the, the charge out of the word and really mm-hmm. get into the body experience. I mean, what is jealousy, mm-hmm. right? It's, mm-hmm. it's a physiological mm-hmm. reaction, you know. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I think what a lot of people forget is that mammals – have jealousy. You know, this is not just mm-hmm. a human thing. My dog mm. was jealous every time I kissed my partner, you know. That's true. Uh, they she, do, yeah. You know, and, 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 and yeah, she had an insecure attachment because she had a traumatic puppyhood, you know. Um, but it, <laughs> you know, but there's this sort of stigma that, you know, evolved humans aren't supposed to feel jealousy. And, and I want to normalize that jealousy is, you know, is kind of normal. Does everybody feel it? No. A lot of people don't feel it. I mean, I'm shocked. I've dated mm-hmm. lots of people that had absolutely no jealousy about whoever I mm-hmm. wanted to make out with or have sex with or dates. Like, yeah, fine, have a good time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and wow, I mean, how fabulous is that, that there are people out there mm-hmm. that can do that. And, um, and if you don't do it that way, if you don't have that kind of attitude and one partner does and the other one doesn't, you know, this is where the work starts. Because the one who doesn't feel jealousy often can't understand somebody else feeling mm-hmm. jealous or somebody else right. feeling, quote, unquote, possessive. It's like they don't, they don't have it in their, in their makeup. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I'm curious about that. You know, that either means that they have an incredibly secure attachment, you know, that, that they were really loved. They were, know they were loved. And um, it just doesn't enter into them. You know, or they're just completely shut down and and completely unaware mm-hmm. of their emotions. It can go both ways, right? Right, right. But um, jealousy for me is something to really um, acknowledge and honor and normalize. Um, mm-hmm. Take the shame out of it, you know, like you say. And, um, I mean, I remember from my own experience how embarrassed I was that I felt jealous because I felt like, this is ridiculous. I have absolutely no reason to feel jealous I mean my head can mm-hmm. come in there and say don't be silly you know you're not going to lose this person he's totally committed to you um, you know what's your problem but again as a body oriented therapist I realized that wait a second my head and my body are not always in cooperation and my belief right. systems even though I'm 100% for open relationships my body is really only about 50% <laughs> um, okay with it. And having to realize, you know, as I work with couples, um, that if there is an agreement about what poly should be or open relationships should be, I'm going to, sorry to keep using the poly word, but, you know, what does an open relationship mean to each person? You know, because there's this idea, let's just open our relationship. Mm-hmm. But when people have attachment 
problems. Um, what often needs to happen, which is really, which is, it seems to be like the thing that works the best, is for there to be a time. Sometimes it's a year. Sometimes it's five to seven years. You know, it really depends on the couple of just being 100% monogamous and um, just really be able, being able to create that secure attachment. And mm-hmm. the most um, successful open relationships that I've seen in my practice that I've also witnessed in my own body are the couples that take time to really get close with each other, to create that secure mm-hmm. attachment between them. Mm-hmm. And then as they start to feel ready, begin to discuss, well, what could this look like? What are mm-hmm. the most safe way, you know, that we can go about this? And mm-hmm. where where I've run into trouble in my own life, and I've been pretty open i've been i think i've pretty been open since i first started to be sexual i mean i remember one of my first primary relationships i was really keen on sharing him with women i just i loved it you know i just thought it was Mm. the greatest thing um Mm -hmm. and i enjoyed it thoroughly you know and it was really hard on me i mean i was 17 or 18 pretty undeveloped personally and really insecure at that age, and it ate me up, you know, at the same way I could feel myself wanting it and desiring it and being really turned on by it, there was this deeper part of me that was just getting totally eaten up. And, Mm. um, I mean, and the good news is that he was pretty, even though he was a little bit older than me, he was remarkably available to kind of talk it out, you know, and so some of my fears um, were assuaged by that, but um, mm-hmm. because he was available to talk about it, and he wasn't, you know, completely, totally, what's the word? Um, he wasn't going to do it no matter what. And that that's where mm-hmm. I've seen it run into trouble. You know, if somebody starts to feel secure, insecure in the relationship, but the other one says, sorry, I'm going to do it anyway, just deal with it, that's... Mm-hmm. Where it gets really ugly, and yeah, um, I wanted to ask you about that. Um, so I have uh, clients I've worked with where one of them, um, most of my clients have established long-term relationships, and then they're opening up their relationship as a mature couple or a, a single who's gotten divorced and doesn't want to go back down the road of, of monogamy. So. Um, but most of them are couples in long-term relationships. So if mm. one of the members of the couple has a stronger desire to open it and they start dating other people and they get really excited about this arrangement and they feel really fulfilled and and let's say they have one date night a week with their new sweetie and it's going really well and they're they're falling in love and they're having all that NRE, that new relationship energy, and then they want to have, you know, two nights a week and their partner is like, wait, I'm just barely getting used to the one night a week, you know, slow down. And the person that's doing it feels like they're just taking forever, you know. They have such a different experience because they're all excited in that energy. And the other person who's less inclined or maybe they're not, their sex drive is less, but they're having to deal with the jealousy, but they don't get the excitement part of it. They just have to manage their jealousy they're wanting to slow down so it's often really differing energies going on can you speak to that a little bit yeah i mean that's 
pretty damn classic, isn't it? I mean, isn't that mm-hmm. what so many of us are seeing? And mm-hmm. well, we the you know the way that that I work it is let's just roll the camera back for a second, and it's really about establishing a kind of initial commitment on the person opening the relationship. There's the one that wants to open it more than the other, or the one that is has an easier time or wants to get in there faster. And mm-hmm. I have found that the one that's dragging a little, um, if there is the ability to come back to the commitment to the primary relationship, which is often mm-hmm. really hard when you have NRE, oh, my goodness, mm-hmm. you know, it is, <laughs> it is absolutely captivating and nothing is as exciting as that. And and I find so that they can actually is, project their they can project their parent issues on their primary partner like, you know, mom or dad is making exactly. me stay home tonight. <laughs> yeah. Their teenager comes out, you know, exactly, yeah. you know, I can't mom can't I can't come over cuz mom doesn't want us alone in the house together, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's total. It's exactly all of our our, our teenage parental stuff um comes right on up. And you know, it's such an individual thing, but if, if I ruled the universe on that one, you know, I would really work with helping the, 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 the speeder. We'll call it the speeder and the hesitator. You know, the, speeder, the speedy one um, needs to keep coming back to his or her commitment to the primary relationship. And if mm-hmm. the, 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 the slower one is able to feel the commitment, you know, is able to. This is what someone in in an insecure attachment, with insecure attachment, needs, is to feel like no matter what happens, this person is committed to me. No matter what happens, um, they're going to keep me in their heart, and mm-hmm. um, and so that might mean that the speedier one might need to make a few sacrifices, and it's going to really, mm-hmm. they're going to be really resentful. But if they can keep mm-hmm. coming back to, well, what do you really want? Do you want a ditch? Your your partner, or do you? And you know, is it worth ditching your partner in order for you to feel, you know, all this excitement? You know, you have to make a decision here. Mm-hmm. And yeah. sometimes, if the the slower one feels that their partner is making a decision based on their happiness, which again goes against everything that so many of us were taught in the '60s and '70s. You know, I'm not responsible for your happiness. Um, if the insecurely attached one feels that they're making a decision um, based on just how triggered they are, they're they're likely to soften and to start to feel more trust and more security. And when there's more trust and there's more security, there's more freedom, you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and so if if the if the speedier one will play their cards right i mean that's really what it's about we got to slow this down here a little bit no it's too soon for 2 days a week it's just too soon and in fact let's see if we can have one day a week and then one night a week where you totally love up your partner whatever that looks mm-hmm. like you know so mm-hmm. how do you really attend to the one that's hurting and mm-hmm. it might take you know, really dropping into the speedier one's heart and going, yeah, I know you've got all this excitement. I know it's the grooviest thing, you know, since cheese pizza. But wait a second, <laughs> you know, let's not lose sight of who you're really committed to here. 
you know, and you both went in this together, and we just have to slow this down. And sometimes, you right. know, just doing that in, in therapy, the the scared one will go, oh, thank you, you know, and something will begin to settle in their body. Um, the mm-hmm. other layer of it is really about community. You know, how do you help the one that's not moving along as quickly or getting as much juicy things, how do you get that one connected to community, going out, doing things, right? So there's there's also some distraction can be um, very useful in that situation. Um, can the one that's left behind that's feeling a lot of fear and jealousy, you know, what is that one doing to get their needs met outside of the relationship, mm-hmm. right, instead mm-hmm, of staying right. home and stewing in their own jealousy, yeah, that's exactly one of the things I teach with jealousy transformation is um, I have a four four pillars that all are all equally important. And one of them is to have a passion hobby so that when your partner is gone, you can say, oh, good, I can work on my stamp collection or whatever it is. You know, something that's great. that you're really yeah, excited like that. about and you're thrilled to have extra time to do it. Before we continue, I just want to say if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. We're speaking with Ariel Giaretto, a psychotherapist and sex educator who specializes in early trauma. And we're talking about how different um, attachment styles affect open relationships. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the opposite attachment style, the one that's avoidant, the one that wants to just get out of the room as fast as possible and what kind of issues mm-hmm. come up for them around open relationship? Well, I mean, I guess, you know, sometimes the question that it, it comes to me, and, and maybe you can speak to this from your experience, Sumi, is that sometimes the avoidant um, attachment style has an easier time, you know, um, mm-hmm. on some levels because the avoidant learns actually not to rely too much on their primary partner, and they can just kind of stay home and, play with their toys, you know. Um and so for for you know working with the you know the the one that's less emotional or the one that's less available um you know for that partner to know exactly where they stand, it's really about helping them um get more connection to what their needs are, what they want. Maybe again, I love your idea like a, a passion project. You know, mm-hmm. how how do they find something that helps them feel connected and passionate about something? So uh, mm-hmm. so that they, they can really in, involve themselves in something that brings them that level of satisfaction. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, it, it, it feels to me like when, and I also look at the avoidant as someone who may not be quite as extroverted, who might have a much more difficult time. You know, is that what your experience is, like going out and finding people? You know, if their one partner is more, is more extroverted, they can go out and they can find lots of, you know, partners and lots of lovers. There's the, a the lot of that. Yeah, I, I yeah. see that a lot, especially with um, men often um, having – this is not always true because I know a lot of men that have gobs more partners than their wife, but um, Mm -hmm. more commonly you'll have where men can't meet as many people or can't attract as many partners in the hetero world um, as their female partner. The female partner who says she's polyamorous and all of a sudden there's millions of men around going, Oh yeah, I'm here (laughs) for you. 
so there can be a lot of imbalance there um, just because the, the man might be more introverted in that relationship. Yes, definitely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, I've sat with so many, you know, people where that's happened where the woman's had no problems at all or there's just been one partner that's more extroverted and more able to bring lots of love towards themselves. And um, what often happens with the more the more introverted one is they also have another, maybe you've seen this too, they have another kind of line in their head, especially right now with the Me Too going on, is mm-hmm. that, there's there's a desire to move towards um, a love partnership or another lover, but they're so afraid of coming across as a pervert, you know, mm-hmm. or they're coming across as just another guy that wants something from someone. And I'm really seeing mm-hmm. that in a, a lot of my mm-hmm. clients right now. The men are having such a hard time right now because they don't know how to approach women mm-hmm. in Mm-hmm. a politically correct way, you know, whatever that mm-hmm. is. And it, it seems like right, right now there is no politically correct way. And if you're at all um, an avoidant attachment style or more introverted, you're really going to have a hard time. And and so, you know, like really, really working with um, identifying, and this is hard, you know, for the avoidant, identifying um, the messages of okayness, or if we want to put it, the messages of consent, like, how do I know when I look out and I see someone, you know, what are the messages that that person gives back to me from their body language that says it's, it's okay to approach um, mm-hmm. and helping them recognize that? Uh, because mm-hmm. what they often do is they'll sit in a gathering or a party or something and they'll kind of look down and, and not know that there's actually people out there that might want them to approach. So. Right. In my work, we call that orienting. We say just look around the room and see if there is some, one person, you know, that looks like they might be approachable or looks mm-hmm. like somebody that you might want to get to know or that you might mm-hmm. want to spark up a conversation. And so it's coming out mm-hmm. with the eyes. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's coming out of their own little spiral afraid of, you know, coming across as being needy or coming across as being lecherous. You know, those are mm-hmm. the experiences that I often hear from people. Um, right, right, right. And, uh, you I know, wanted, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, did you have no, one more no, thought on that? you were going to say something. Okay. Nope. Yeah, no, I, I wanted didn't. to nope. uh, dig a little deeper into the, you talked early on uh, about the nervous system and the fight, fight, flight, or freeze that happens. Mm-hmm. And um, I've had that happen to me where I have, um, you know, a bad date where the person I'm on a date with gropes me or something. And I, I was just shocked at how I couldn't just say, what the hell are you doing? I just went into like nicey, nice girly mode of like, oh, ha, 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 you're just trying to get to second base, aren't you? And then just hated myself later for like, what was that reaction? Why did I get him off the hook for that? And then just this weekend, it happened where we're at this clothing optional resort. It's a very new agey. Everybody who comes there gets an orientation about consent. And, and, you know, there's women that are nude in the pools. And one of the women in my, in my group was floating in the pool. And this man, you know, gently touched her belly. And she was like, okay, I guess people do that here. And the next thing you know, he's pinching her nipples really, really hard. And she moved his hands away really quickly, but then that's all she did. She didn't say anything else, and she was beating herself up later 
for not hmm. calling him out on it more in the moment. And I was telling her, yes, that happened to me too. We go into our reptilian brain and our faculties aren't there to be able to, to call them out in the moment and say, what are you doing? And like kind of name it publicly for everyone to see. And then he knew he could get away with that because of that, you know? So can you talk right. a little bit more about that, that way that we go into fight, flight, or freeze and how it's not our fault that we can't speak up more in the moment and then what to do later when your, when your higher brain kicks back in. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, wow, that's exactly what we're dealing with right now, isn't it? With the whole mm-hmm. Me Too movement and and women who had to freeze, you know, mm-hmm. and men too, you know. And men are coming out of freeze too with all the violations. But, mm-hmm. I mean, it, there's so many different layers here about that, Sumi, you know. And, and one layer is that when things happen to us as a child, you know, um, we we are kind of biologically programmed not to fight back against our parents. Mm-hmm. You know, it, mm-hmm. and if our parents, you know, again, well-meaning people, but maybe really poor boundaries. I mean, mm-hmm. even even looking at the boundaries of how people treat babies. You know, they go up there, they pinch their face, goo goo gaga. They pick them up without their consent. You know, mm-hmm. they change their diaper without consent. They force them to eat mm-hmm. when it's not time to eat. You know, they tell, they say to the kid, you know, go kiss your Aunt Betty, even though you hate your Aunt Betty. You know, there's like constant messages that, that tell us we really don't have the right to our own body. And and so part of it's parenting style. And it's something that I teach my, you know, my new, the parents, you know, it's like, tell your child that you're going to do this. Ask permission you know, before you do anything to their body. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But we didn't, you know, we didn't get that. And there's, there's, there's a size differential also that's a very, very real issue here, that if we call attention to ourselves, we yell out, we say stop, that there's a very good chance from, you know, millions of years of evolution that the person that is violating us is going to get violent, you know, there's always that risk, someone who is bigger and stronger. Um, and so the, the primary survival strategy for smaller animals, you know, is to flee. You know, most animals mm-hmm. will get away. The only time animals fight is if they're cornered. If they had mm-hmm. all the time in the world, they're going to slink away. You know, I mean, there are some really aggressive carnivores, you know, lions and bears and, you know, they are aggressors, you know, and obviously when um, when animals are in heat and they're fighting, they're the aggressor. But for the most Mm -hmm. part, if you give someone all the time in the world, they're going to just fade away. And if you Mm -hmm. can't, you know, flee, which you can't do as a child, well, then you're going to dissociate, which is a type of a Mm -hmm. fleeing response. Mm. Um, that that is, I'm going to leave my body and I'm just going to freeze and I'm I'm out of here. My consciousness is gone and then whatever you do to me, I'm not going to be present for it while you do it to me, because there's no way that a child can fight back. They're just going to get overwhelmed and and women know this too that. You know, even you saying something on a date, like, what are you doing? I didn't tell you you could do that. There's some small part of you that fears, and this is true for all women, that if I make, if I make a, a, a big deal about this, he's just going to haul off and he'll hit, hit me or kill me, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And, and even if this is 
somebody that you know that wouldn't do that, the, the biological programming, you know, to go quiet and to stealthfully get away is way deeper than the impulse that we have to fight. People who mm. fight are usually have to be trained to fight back. You know, mm. this is where martial mm-hmm. arts comes in. No, you know, and mm-hmm. where you know where the 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 default reaction is not fleeing or disappearing. You can train mm. yourself to be a fighter. You know, but you have to get training. I mean, that's what sold even soldiers need training on fighting. Because they have to override their natural impulse. You know, if you see someone coming at you with a gun or with bombs, you know, cops and firefighters, the same thing. They have to be trained to be aggressive. Mm-hmm. Most people aren't naturally aggressive unless they have to be. So, mm, you know, that makes all this so much sense. Thing. You know, like, why didn't women fight back? Or why didn't kids yell? Or it's like, uh uh-uh. uh, that's not going to work. There's some. Mm-hmm deep, deep, deep knowing that that's not the best thing to do right now. And there's so much shame about it. And, um, and when there's physical... Thank you for that description. That's, that's really helpful because, once again, it shows us it's not our fault. It's, you know, we're all sort of Absolutely. victims of our biology and our physiology. Um, can you share a little bit more about your own history with how you got to the place where you are now with open relationship and uh, I don't know if you're currently practicing. I don't think you are, but I know you have in the past and, and how you overcame your traumas and how you used some of these tools for yourself. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's been a long personal road, and, it, and you know, it, it's no mistake that I'm super interested in both attachment and, um, and sexuality. Um, I had a really... Um, <laughs> like everybody I know, dysfunctional childhood, right? Um really poor attachment, you know, basically my mother wanted nothing to do with me at all. And um, um, I had to do a lot, a lot, a lot of personal work from a more of an individual perspective on my own therapeutic process just to be able to feel that it was okay, you know, to be alive, that it was okay for me to feel um, worthwhile. And and so a lot of my um, early relationships were – they, I was never in any kind of brutal relationships in any way. I've never been attracted to uh, violent people, thank goodness for that, or you know, people who drink or act out. I've, I've picked pretty safe people, but they were very, mm-hmm. you know, they were very, um, what would you call it, um, unavailable. Those were the classic ones. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. because um, I always tried so hard because I felt so little self-worth, what I did in a lot of my early relationships um, was think, well, my man will, um, although I'm bisexual, I am primarily heterosexual, but I love women as well. Um, If I would share my man with a woman, he'll think I'm the coolest thing ever and he won't leave me and he won't cheat Mm -hmm. on me. So I did a Mm -hmm. lot of bringing women in. Like I would try to find the hottest, sexiest woman I could find to share with my man, you know, thinking that, he would value me more. And it, mm-hmm. was a, it was a kind of a good thought. I mean, it kind of worked. You know, he was, most of my partners were pretty amazed that I would do that. But I was kind of dying on the inside because, you know, I realized I wasn't getting from my partner the validation that I was okay. I was only feeling validated because I was doing this cool and groovy thing. And right. um, 
So I had a lot of really uh, painful experiences. I lived and worked as a therapist and body worker at the Esalen Institute for 11 years, which is just a cesspool <laughs> of, <laughs> of unhappy relating, you know, and um, just had way too many uh, short-term painful um, relationships there and uh, ended up leaving there because I actually wanted to try something more more meaningful. Um, I got wonderfully involved with high and a lot of the sex positive um, communities, which have, have probably been involved now about 10 years. And it was just like the best thing that could ever happen to me. Uh, and, and yet I, what I've really learned is that by nature, I am a very open person. And by nature, I absolutely, totally believe, both from my own personal experience, that I can be with my partner on Tuesday and completely, totally love him or her and then be with somebody else on Wednesday and not lose any love whatsoever for my primary partner. And it was really good for me to feel that because – in my early years, I felt like a lot of people that the only reason my partner wanted to have, you know, relations with other people is that I wasn't enough or I wasn't sexy enough or I wasn't beautiful or mm-hmm. smart. You know, there's always this long laundry list of all the reasons why I wasn't enough. And so my experiences with open relationships have really helped me learn that it is absolutely possible to love people, you know, equally and not have anybody suffer. So I've experimented mm-hmm. with lots of different scenarios, and what I've discovered works best for me is that um, is that I can't be a secondary. For the longest time, I loved being a secondary. I liked being with people who were in primary relationships, and I could kind of flow in and out, and that really worked with me mm-hmm. for a while. But then I got tired of it, and um, uh, about three years ago, I said, enough, I want to have a primary partner. Uh, I don't want to share people anymore. And um, maybe that was long. Maybe it was like more like six years ago. And um, and so I was in a in a, a, a long term relationship, and it was it was really great. We were pretty much monogamous for about three years, and then he wanted to open it up, and um, I was totally fine with it. Um, but what I discovered is that I needed it to be open in a very specific way. And um, this is what I learned is that if you have one person who wants to open the relationship in one way and another person wants to open it in a different way, it's just not going to work. And we ended up mm-hmm. clashing. Um, mm-hmm. I travel a lot for work, and he wanted to only have someone when I was gone, which makes complete and total logical sense, but it didn't work for mm-hmm. me. It, it completely mm-hmm. flipped me out. And I would be off teaching and training and being in the, you know, being a, a trainer in these workshops, totally obsessed with, well, is he with her now and what are they doing? And, mm. and um, I had to do a lot, a lot, a lot of personal work, and, um, which is what I did. I went into therapy. I tried to make it okay. Um, and I couldn't make it okay. And I just realized, nope, this kind of poly doesn't work for me. I have to know the person I have to trust the woman, I have to be friends with her, and it can't happen when I'm out of town. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I've learned to sort of establish some rules about the way that my nervous system can handle it. And um, so I, I ended up breaking up with that person because I realized that he wanted to do poly differently, or he wanted to do open differently than I did. 
And now, from the last three years, I've been in a monogamous relationship, um, primarily because I don't have enough time <laughs> to mm-hmm. be in an open relationship right now. It takes a lot of time and effort, and I'm just kind mm-hmm. of enjoying mm-hmm. the three years of being um, monogamous with the understanding that we probably will open it up at some time, you know, and mm-hmm. we're going to open it up slowly, and we're mm-hmm. going to experiment with different ways of doing it, and he's beautiful mm-hmm. because I can feel mm-hmm. his total commitment to me, and that's really mm-hmm. in my attachment style. That's what I need. I need to feel someone's 100% commitment to me and that they're they're going to choose me over somebody else. And if I have that in place, then I'm good to go. Right. So. And I, I like what you said about um, the different styles of, of open relationship because I think so many of us don't know what style we want until we go out and try it. And then we yeah. go, well, that's exactly. Work. <laughs> And so that's exactly. what I like to offer. Yeah. And that's what I like to offer my clients is I, I want to help you find that sooner than it took me to find it until I was a mature mm-hmm. woman until I got. Like, here is the type of open relationship that works for me. And everybody has different needs. Like you said, some people might want to want their partner to be with other women only when you're out of town. You know, that, exactly. that may be their yeah. preference. But for you, it was exactly. you just want to be closer um, to the woman that he's with. So, so, yeah, we all have to find that for ourselves um, because there's so many different ways. Almost everybody that practices non-monogamy does it in their own unique way, and it's about a lot of deep self-discovery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So congratulations to you for finding what works for you and finding a partner who's on board with you. And I was at your beautiful wedding, and I saw your commitment and your love for each other. And and I just really want to acknowledge you for that, for finding what works for you and celebrating that. Thank you. And it's a constant work in progress, isn't it? You know, and of course we are starting to, (laughs) you know, yeah. And we are starting to have that talk. Well, you know, maybe we need to start to think about opening it. So, you know, we're we're having the discussion, and we'll we'll see what that evolves into. But it's mm-hmm. been it's been beautiful. My, I am finally securely attached. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful yeah, feeling. Yeah, it, it can take <laughs> a long time. And that's and so that's what you and I are out here doing. We're helping people to, from our own mistakes and our own experiences to be able to get through these things faster, more efficiently, so that we can have what we want a little earlier in our life and have more years yeah. of pleasurable relationships. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I love that we so, both do very similar things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, we're almost out of time, but I just really want to thank you. The time just flew by. I feel like we could have talked for another couple hours. <laughs> so maybe I'll have you back again. <laughs> Um, okay. But I really honor your work and, and really look up to you, and I really appreciate you being a guest on my show. And I want to give you Thank some you. time to tell our listeners how they can reach you if they'd like to work with you, um, and maybe a little bit about what what you're offering people. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I have a website. Um, it's called fullembodiment.org, and um, it pretty much maps out all the things that I offer there, both in terms of uh, private sessions and workshops. Um, I, I have um, a couple of different workshops that I teach all over the world. I have one coming up in November 
uh, November 9th, 10th, and 11th at the Rudram and Deer Center in uh, Berkeley. And it's um, a workshop that's called um, The Energetics of Intimacy, and it's about really what happens in our bodies when our partners approach us um, or what happens in our bodies when we approach our beloved um, and is a lot about just, you know, how do we start to show up more in intimate and sexual relationship and what gets in the way of that. And it's, it's really fun. It's very experiential. Um, I do it with my beautiful, beautiful co-leader um, who's a man named uh, Tom Callanan, and um, he specializes in working with male sexual abuse survivors. Um, so we have a really beautiful sort of balance between working with wounds but also really working with the health in everybody's um, system. We're offering the same workshop in Greece, <laughs> in Noxos, Greece, in October. Um, so anybody who wants to have a little vacation can come to Noxos uh, October 11th to the 16th. Um, Beautiful. We do have um, some early bird rates on the Rudram and Deer um, experience in November. If you want to look it up on the website, there's some pretty good discounts that are being offered right now. And if you have any questions, you're welcome to email me that, through that website, and I'm very happy to answer any questions or give you referrals or work with you individually if that's uh, something that you want to do, um, both through Skype or in person. Excellent. Thank um, you so much, Ariel. Yeah. I really appreciate you being on the show again, and thank you for all that you do in the world. Mm, thank you, Sumi. Same to you. All right. Love you lots. See okay. You. Have a good night. <laughs> Bye-bye. Okay, so to our listeners, next week we will be speaking with the lovely Anita DeFrancesco. She is the founder of Tantra Wisdom, and she offers workshops. Uh, and many people think of Tantra as sex, and she does not come from that place. She comes from uh, Tantra focusing on the larger issues of energy, communication, and consent. And she talks about how Tantra was one of the first places where you could learn about how to um, work with consent in a clear way. So I'm really excited to have her on the show next week. So please tune in at 6 p.m. Pacific time on Leading Edge Love Radio, and we'll talk to you then. Have a good night, everybody. <music>